SeedPod is supported by Gifted, a boutique gifting agency who create gifts for hospitality, corporates and events. The Gifted team support local artisans by sourcing local products where possible. For Gifted, ideal gifts are sustainable, ethical, natural and organic. Gifted offer a wide range of services from concept, design and sourcing to packaging and delivery, making the often undesirable task of looking for gifts easy. They make you look good. To find out more, please visit www.giftedforyou.co.za. This week's guest, Orni Patton Power, is the founder of Intelligent Impact, a technology for social impact advisory firm, and a university lecturer on innovative finance, impact investing, and technology for impact. A reformed M&A investment banker, Orni began her impact investing career in 2010 with Unitas Capital in Bangalore, and has since worked with startups, intermediaries, foundations, corporates, and governments across Asia, Africa, Europe, and North America. Orni's work has been published throughout the world, including by Oxford University Press, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and the World Economic Forum, to name a few. Our conversation spans many interesting topics, from looking at some of the innovation coming out of South Africa at the moment, which personally gives me a lot of hope, to what it's like being a woman in the impact investing space and some of the challenges that she faced, and looking at our monetary system and whether it's something that we need to review and change or whether we need to throw it out and start again. I found this a fascinating conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Lee Rail and you're listening to SeedPod, a podcast dedicated to the people shaping South Africa through entrepreneurship, sustainability and design. Before we get started, please rate us on iTunes and share this with your friends. It really helps us a lot. Oni, thank you so much for coming on to or agreeing to come on to SeedPod. Uh, you are the first guest who is lucky enough to use all this amazing new equipment I've got. It looks very fancy. <laughs> uh, so I did some reading up on on you before I came, and I was quite uh, intimidated by your CV. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it seems like you've done a hell of a lot, um, and it's it's very impressive. My first question is, where would you say your your because there's a long list of stuff mm-hmm. and it, you come from a finance background, but where, where would you say your sweet spot is at the moment? Yeah, that's really easy. So coming from a finance background, trying to understand how both finance and business can have a positive social and environmental impact. Um, you know, the first kind of seven-ish years of my career were very focused just on that, a um, little bit of tech. Um, but over the past two years, really um, spent a lot of time diving into exponential technologies, just recognizing that there were blockages um, that I didn't feel that we could get over without you know using radically new ways of doing things so you know it's it's just that the last two years really have been about how do we use exponential technologies for impact and particularly impact investing and innovative financing so for me it's about using technologies to be able to allocate capital to be able to structure funds and to be able to measure impact and that's and that's very much where i sit right now so when you say exponential technologies, yes. what specifically do you mean there? Sure. Artificial intelligence, a blockchain, a remote sensing, uh, which includes all different types of um, IoT um, and um, satellite imagery, drones. So these new types of technology that um, are we're still figuring out how we use them um, can be, as well as being quite scary for what happens in the future, can actually be in themselves, um, have the ability to create positive social and environmental impact if 
the investors and the organizations and the individuals that are wanting to do that learn how to harness them. So for me, it's very much about learning about that opportunity and then going into the areas of impact investing and innovative financing that I know really well and saying, well, this is a distribution problem. So we can use technology to address this distribution problem, or this is an impact measurement problem. We can actually use sensors to collect the type of data we've always wanted to know about you know, what types of organizations have the most impact, what types of products have the most impact. So really taking that data and being able to amp up what we're doing on the social and environmental side. Hmm. And, and which of those... So I guess uh, where, where do you sit in that spectrum? Are you an advisor? <laughs> are you, do you help implement? Are you research-based? All of the above. Okay. <laughs> so it's um, the the hardest question I often get is like, what do you do? Um, so you know, starting really from the very beginning, I've kind of created jobs. I've never. Um, I think the last time I applied for a job, I think I was twenty two. Um, so that was a while ago. Um, and so really, what. Um, I play a few different roles. So I teach and I lecture at universities here at UCT and then at the London School of Economics and the University of Oxford. Um, and I focus mostly on graduate and executives um, just because you know they're the most likely to go out and actually do things. Um, and they're the most likely to be able to have a good exchange as well. Um, and then I do some research. Um, so I work um, on a kind of ad hoc basis um, for the World Economic Forum, um, for governments, um, for multilateral institutions um, that need specific pieces of work done. Um, and I do a lot of advisory work as well. Um, so working with startups, working with um, foundations, working with governments, again, around helping them with advisory, um, around impact investing and innovative financing. Um, and then I, I work, I mean, I guess, really, I do what it needs to be done. So for me, it's very much about, you know, where are, again, where are the blockages, and then what needs to be done. So the training is really important in this industry, because there's not enough kind of knowledge about how, what are the best practices on how to move forward. And there's a lot of people want to get into the space. But then once they are in the space, there's a lot needs to be done on a variety of ways around matchmaking for investors, something I've worked on over the years, um, around looking at how do, how do we better set up principles um, to be able to actually allocate capital? How do we build funds? Um, how do we build impact investing strategies? So depending on Depending on where I sit and who kind of you know comes to me, I generally kind of take what someone says. I need to do this, and I normally say you need to talk to this person. And then every once in a while, if it's a really interesting opportunity, I say I'll do it myself. So it's um, I have a bit of a screen myself on it, but I play a variety of different roles um, in a variety of countries. Actually, um, I love being based in South Africa and living in Cape Town, but I work um, around the world. Um, and how did you get to Cape Town? What what brings you here? <laughs> um, I mean. I mean, other than today it's raining, but I mean, normally it's a beautiful place. Um, so I, I came here on vacation first about seven years ago, and I really loved it. I had been living in India um, and had been looking for um, another emerging market um, to uh, be able to base myself in. Um, I didn't feel like uh, it made sense for me long term um, in Bangalore, where I was in India. And so I was working in the UK at the time um, and then ended up coming back down about a year later to do some work for UCT um, and really, really fell in love with kind of what um, the center the Bertha Center, who had just, would have just started, was doing. And so the director had said, you know, come down, you can make the center your base. Um, and then ended up being very involved in the center for the next kind of five years and still slightly involved with the center. 
And then it also did help that um, the first night I was I was here for work at UCT, I ended up meeting my now husband. <laughs> right. He lowered me down. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a love story, actually. Uh, kind of. Lo- love, <laughs> love and work. <laughs> it's funny how many... Uh, well, it's not funny. It's, it's, it's obvious that I meet a lot of foreigners who come here and then just have to move here or yeah. never leave. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a... It's a very alluring place to live. It is. Despite all the troubles and things we have. But for me, part of the the allure is actually the ability to get my hands dirty. I've worked with the South African government at municipal, at provincial, and at national level the whole time that I've been here. Um, And multiple organizations that are based here and funders that work here and have done a lot of ecosystem building work. And probably the work that I'm the most proud of is the work that we've done with building the impact investing ecosystem in South Africa. And and that's what I wanted to do. Even though I work globally, I wanted to be very firmly rooted in an ecosystem that was vibrant. And I think what's been interesting in the past couple of years is we also have this incredible um, ecosystem around startups in exponential technologies. So some of the work that I do here around um, artificial intelligence for um, impact investing, around blockchain for impact measurement, is the best work that's being done in the world. Seriously? Seriously. Wow. And, and it's amazing to bring people down into that and get to, you know, organizations that are based here that, you know, are known globally. Um, you know, we just have this and having that type of ecosystem. And we have machine learning and artificial intelligence experts that are on par with the rest of the world and so that's it's good to know it's, it's been really fun for me because you know i have this i had whereas when you know seven years ago the impact investing um, ecosystem was almost non-existent and it's been a lot of work um, by a lot of people including myself to build that up whereas the um, technology kind of ecosystem that i almost fell into was already thriving so it's a little bit of a different um, system but you know this idea of exponential technologies and impact investing is still very nascent um, and two years ago, kind of when I started exploring it, it was almost non-existent. So there's been, it's been a lot of learnings, but I, I love being here. I love, I love the, the community of innovators here. And I love the way that technology is approached in emerging markets, just in general, around looking at solving problems as opposed to creating, you know, kind of cool things. Um, mm. So there's just, there's a driving sense of entrepreneurs of wanting to actually fix things. I think that's one of that's been one of my I guess one of my bugbears with technology in general is like so what if my phone can do more stuff actually like yeah. w- there's so much energy and money put into amazing technology but what is it doing yeah uh, so yeah it, it, it's encouraging to hear what you're saying so, so I just want to take one step back yeah. quickly and just ask. What is your definition of impact investing? Sure. Um, Impact investing is um, an intentional effort by investors to create positive social and environmental impact as well as um, financial returns. I work in the impact investing world as well as the innovative financing world. Now, innovative finance is a bit broader, um, and essentially it's an effort to create social and environmental impact through organizations, individuals, and initiatives. Um, But innovative financiers don't necessarily have to get financial return. So an example of that would be a um, a fund that's set up where the South African government um, is looking to do affordable housing. Now, instead of the South African government going in and essentially paying for a bunch of houses to be built, uh, one option that's done done globally, and I've been working with um, the provincial government on, is actually for potentially for the government to create a guarantee. 
um, for a fund of private capital. So South African government would say, we will guarantee up to 30% of this fund. And then you have an affordable housing provider like Old Mutual uh, come in and fund, sorry, they're not a provider, they're a financier, they would come in and fund it, working with potentially a set of um, affordable housing providers. Um, and then there could be you know, elements of technology that are put into that around tracking how the houses are being built, how people are paying for them, and that combination would be innovative financing. The government wouldn't be receiving necessarily a financial return, although they could calculate the, the economic benefit to them. Um, the innovative financing piece, though, would be pulling together that guarantee, which would lower the cost of financing from um, Old Mutual and potentially make it viable for these affordable housing providers to be able to get the financing they need to build um, the the houses. And those providers could be nonprofits as well, nonprofits or social enterprises. So Old Mutual would be the impact investor in that scenario. But putting that whole thing together would be an innovative financing structure. So in that example, does Old Mutual look for a return on there? They yeah, do. they would look for a, a risk-adjusted return. And what's happened is is that by the government guaranteeing a piece of it, essentially they've, they've reduced the risk of that. So instead of Old Mutual coming in at, I'm not going to do pricing because Old Mutual will probably kill me for that, but instead of them coming in um, say at, uh, well, I'll throw it out there. Say they come in at CPI plus six. They might actually say, well, with a 30, 40, 50% guarantee by the government, this is actually CPI plus two. Um, and again, those are no, in no indication of actually what would happen here. But that then change, that reduction in that um, cost, would be passed on to the service providers, which would be passed on to the end users, which would potentially make the whole um, thing viable. So, so it reduces the risk of defaulting on loans and all along the chain. Yeah, so guarantees are just one of. So I've compiled um, kind of a set of work over the past 10 years around innovative financing mechanisms. And so I have um, about 57 different types of mechanisms that I teach my students how to build. And then the idea is actually to take and mix and match. So what I do is when when I'm teaching is I actually don't say, you know, this is what you should do. It's more of a let's let's look at the process. So starting with the problem, you look at what is the, what is the actual problem here? Why is it still a problem? Often people think that it's money. Most of the time, it's not just money. <laughs> There's so many other pieces that are broken in the system. And then you do diligence on that problem. So you're figuring out what is the problem landscape and what's the solution landscape. And then you look for opportunities. So what are ways you could use things like business um, model innovation, et cetera, to do this? Um, and then you look at what are the resources. So what do you have to address this issue? And then by doing all of that and piecing it all together, you create an innovative financing mechanism that can address food waste um, in restaurants. It can look at um, how do you um, better, um, or how do you reduce mother's child transmission of HIV AIDS? That's another instrument that we've designed with the Western Cape government. Um, looking at working with um, out-of-school children um, in India, another instrument um, in Rajasthan and in India, getting girls into school. So really looking at a problem and saying, how do we pull together the resources, not just capital, potentially community resources, potentially, you know, government resources, private resources, how do we pull those together to actually address a problem? And for me, the biggest thing is actually allowing bottom up. So creating mechanisms that actually allow multiple different, whether it's individuals or organizations, to solve the problem themselves. Um, One of my favorite new ones is um, with, with technology is 
looking at um, doing micropayments to communities around conservation. So actually tagging um, rhinos, et cetera, and then paying communities essentially to keep them alive. So you can set up a set of wallets, and this is being, uh, there's a couple of different pilots, and we can talk about some different ones. Essentially, you could set up wallets in a community and then make monthly, weekly payments to villagers based off of you know the number of animals that are still there, the type of, you can do satellite imagery looking at what type of vegetation is still there, but essentially creating short-term incentives for long-term environmental goals. So the villagers themselves then you know, need to figure out what works for them around that, um, but the financing mechanism could have all kinds of different pieces at the top of different funders that are interested in sustainable fishing and you know, conservation um, that have, a, have an economic incentive. For instance, a group of organizations that are fishermen <laughs> or fishing companies, they want to make sure that an area is not overfished. Um, so you can pull together economic and social incentives to be able to create something that works for everyone. Mm, that's re- that's really interesting. So so let's, if we use that rhino example, yeah. the, the, the poachers would often go through those communities, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if, if they then have an incentive to keep those poachers out, then that helps to solve the issue. Exactly. So you look at, again, this is when you're looking at the due diligence. Why are people making this decision? Uh, these local communities, you know, don't dislike these animals. I mean, they're not, they're not out to get these animals. They're being, they're being shown an impossible choice. Send your child to school or, you know, help someone. If you help someone to poach a rhino, you can send your child to school. Or, you know, stand up for, you know, this animal that doesn't actually have any monetary impact that you see. Even though mm-hmm. it can be promoting tourism, you might not actually see that income in a direct way. Mm-hmm. And so the idea then, whether you're doing it with, um, there's another great pilot, an organization called Sela that's doing it in Nigeria, where um, they're working on cleaning up the Niger Delta. So there's been billions of dollars put into essentially funds to be able to clean up oil spills in the Niger Delta. Most of it has gone absolutely nowhere near the Delta, other than maybe the cars, the Lamborghinis and Mercedes that are driven near there by people that have you know absconded with the money. And so what Sela does is they use a variety of technologies to actually um, monitor if people are doing the work. So they have ex-militants that are then employed by an app um, to clean up specific sections of the delta and are paid to do that. The way they're paid is that women in the village actually come out and take pictures and verify that that area has been cleaned. And then they double-check that with satellite imagery so that they can actually look and see this area has been cleaned. And then they make payments to the women and to the uh, ex-militants to be able to do that. Now, what that allows us to do, similar to the Rhino thing, is to be able to take and say, this is worth X amount. The tourism industry is worth X amount. Right now, the tourism operators are getting a huge piece of that. But there's actually a whole incentive to make sure that you know the rhinos don't disappear. That the Niger Delta actually is you know clean from an environmental perspective. So look at who's closest to the issue, and then potentially how do we pay them? And this is where technology comes in, and using things like the blockchain to be able to verify digital wallets, uh, mobile payments, being able to potentially go down to the absolute end consumer as opposed to necessarily stopping with the internet. And that's just one element of innovative financing, but it's something that, for me, I get very excited about actually being able to put the power in the hands of the person that's, you know, at the very coalface. You know, paying someone to send their child to school may sound crass, but it works. In parts of Brazil, um, there's been massive uh, programs around, essentially, incentive payments. And what you do is you don't try and incentivize people to do things they don't want to do. You try and provide economic incentive for people to do things that they actually already want to do. 
So these villagers have been living in harmony with, with animals for you know thousands of years. So that provides them the economic incentive to be able to do that. People want to send their kids to school. The reason they don't is that they need them to go work. And so by trying to pair that up, that's one tiny way that we can potentially start to solve some of these things around the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. That sounds really exciting. So, so in, in, the, in those examples, would large finances put the money into to pay those... So for the rhino one, would, yeah. a, would a, whoever normally commits funds to conservation, they would fund that. So it wouldn't be a, oh, I want to give 10 rand to this, it's like a crowdfunding type of, or could be both. It's the sky's the limit. Yeah. So what we can do too, and there's companies that are doing this, Alice.si does this, um, and um, the EXO Foundation here in, in South Africa also are working on doing this. So actually pairing up investors and what called outcome funders. So if you have funders that are willing to pay for the outcome, i.e., you know, that at the end of five years the rhino population has you know, grown instead of decreased, then what you can do is you can actually pair investors up, and investors put the upfront money up with the idea of making a return, a financial return, if they've achieved the outcome where you could have outcome funders like, for instance, a tourism um, board that says, listen, we're willing to pay X millions um, to at the end of five years for the rhino population to increase. And then you could have a variety of interventions that investors fund. And then if it gets to that point and they do achieve that, then they get paid out. And you can do this with multitude of different um, ideas it's and this idea it's called social impact bond is or um, outcome payments is or outcome invest or outcome funding has been around for a while and there's been different ways in which we've done it within the financing world but they've been i mean there's been some successes and we've designed um, some with the government here but without technology to be able to allow them to be replicated um they're just quite expensive and big. And so this idea of creating markets where you or I or a government or a private investor could participate in some way that makes sense based off of you know what we want from our money and our lives, um, so matching up investors that need to make a return with someone that's willing to you know give money um, and then potentially funders that, again, have an economic incentive. So governments or a tourism board has an economic incentive for the wildlife to be protected. And so they can look and say, right, well, you know, our our wildlife income or our income from tourism is X million per year. If, you know, we start not having rhinos, it's going to go down to Y million. So what portion of that delta are we potentially willing to pay to ensure that that doesn't happen? Hmm. Hmm. I'm just, my mind's just <laughs> going all sorts of places. Yeah, it opens up a lot of... Um, opportunities and and ideas uh sure particularly one of my passions is around climate change and and environmental impact at the moment and it's it's as you probably know it's 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 so crucial we're such a crucial state right now that we really need to take action and i feel like one of the things that is holding us back is money and finance and and yeah, so maybe some of these ideas could help shift, shift the. You know, even from a personal perspective, like if if I, if I, had money that I wanted to invest, and there was a platform that I could invest in, and that investment 
created positive impact, that would be incredible. I would I would do it tomorrow. So there are about a hundred of them globally. Right. Yeah. So and I know that because um, a friend actually um, just finished a research study. Uh, it's called the Artha platform. Just finished a research study with the Brodelman Foundation, and they mapped 150 platforms. Um, so you can find that on Impact Finance Network. Um, I will and go and look. <laughs> so you can see which ones are here. So right now in South Africa, we don't have enough retail options. Um, we do have a few. Um, there's peer-to-peer lending options where you can potentially lend SMEs. Um, so there's been there's a few companies that do that. Um, we definitely need more. I have been working with, and I can't say the names, but I've been working with some of our big institutions to potentially create retail options. And I would say some of those are going to be coming out in the next six to nine months. Um, and so, yes, I think globally there's there's a need for better retail options. There's an interesting program in France called the 90-10 Solidarity um, Movement. And what it does um, is it allows you as a pension fund holder to elect to put 10% of your pension fund into social organizations, which are defined specifically in French law as cooperatives in essence. And so then the pension fund then invests 10% essentially of your and the pool's pension into social organizations. Um, And that's something, that's a structure that um, as part of the um, the South African National Advisory Board for Impact Investing, um, the South African um, Steering Group, sorry, for Impact Investing, the, um, the Bertha Center has set up, and um, one of the things that they're looking at. So what are these structural things that we can potentially put into place? Regulation 28 in South Africa does require um, that social and environmental, so ESG, is taken into account. It just doesn't say how we have to do that. Um, There's another cool product actually in Australia that I really like that we don't have here yet um, that's an insurance product. So how insurance works is that, you know, we pay premiums. Those premiums are actually invested to be able to then, you know, pay out when they need to pay out. And so um, this Premium Plus product um, that was developed by QBE um, is essentially takes your um, your percentage of your premiums um, and invests them in social impact. And so then you get a report back, you know, every quarter that looks at, you know, essentially what, what you're, by not claiming essentially what your money did during that quarter. So there are ways for individuals to be involved. Um, and um, another one is the Sun Exchange. So that's a South African-based company. You can buy um, pixels of um, whole solar um, home systems. So PV not, doesn't have to be a home system, sorry, solar panels. Um, and so those can be installed anywhere. And so you can go on and purchase um, as many as you'd like. I don't think pixels is the right word, sorry. <laughs> you can buy pieces of a solar panel. Abe is going to yell at me if he hears this. You can buy pieces of a solar panel. Um, and then you get a return based off of what's being sold back into the system. Now, for that to be adopted on a large scale in South Africa, we need better laws around being able to sell um, solar power back into the system. Um, But for now, things like that are available. Hmm. That's super exciting. Um, Where are you from originally? Minnesota. It's in the middle up towards the top. It's like a random, what we call a blue state. So it's a very liberal state in the middle of the Midwest. Uh, so it's a very cold state. <laughs> Probably part of the reason I went to warmer pastures. <laughs> and and you left there at 
Oh, gosh. I left there when I was 18. I went to college um, in a state called Indiana. Um, and then I lived in Chicago and New York after that. Um, and then I had my reckoning when I was 24 and decided that I didn't want to be my reckoning. Um, what does that mean? I realized I was in the midst of a couple of transactions as an investment banker in mergers and acquisitions. Um, and I realized I was doing a couple of transactions, one for um, a healthcare company in Puerto Rico and then another for a private um, education company and both were pretty despicable com- companies they were trying to use anyway they were trying to do things that were just not good for the end, end user you know ripping people off from an education perspective trying to pay investors instead of providing health care to people that they were supposed to um, and I just didn't want to spend my time doing that I knew I was good at it um, and I liked the work I just didn't like who I was doing it for did you know do you, do you know you know Zach right yes yeah. so, did you know him when he was based in? No, no, we were we were based at the same time though. We're the, okay. we're, same, we're almost. The same. Well, he's like, he's. I think he's two years older than me. But yeah, okay. Zach and I were very similar. Both both of them. But he he stayed for longer. I had okay. my reckoning earlier. Okay. <laughs> he stayed in the system a little longer than I did, uh, and he was in New York at a different bank. Um, yeah, and so I packed up my stuff. I basically took a backpack and traveled the world for 14 months and uh, mm, i saw that on your cv i was like oh travel oh that <laughs> and then i didn't stop no but then i ended up spending so i mean it was i like muhammad yunus's book a world without poverty was one of the the catalysts and it was quite cool because about four years later i ended up hosting an event with him and got to introduce him um and so it was this kind of nice full circle of like where my kind of career had gone amazing um and so he's muhammad yunus essentially was the the creator in essence of microfinance in bangladesh um and his his thesis was he, he was walking to university and he saw you know these very very poor people in Bangladesh and realized that just a small amount of capital would would help them to kind of start to pull themselves out of poverty and so he started lending small amounts of money and at that time this idea that poor people could pay back I mean at the time poor the poor were seen as beneficiaries definitely not as um, you know users and producers um, so this idea that the poor were beneficiaries and not consumers or producers essentially they were at the end of a handout and so what he started doing was loaning small amounts of money to um, women and they started repaying him and you know what's been interesting around the microfinance industry is that from a metadata perspective we know that it's not good or bad actually it's very interesting so microfinance can be harmful if people borrow money to buy consumable products, i.e. they're not buying assets. Microfinance works really well when people are buying assets. They're investing in things, even like education, but they're investing in assets as opposed to consumables. And so that idea of it changed the entire industry. So microfinance as a debt product is the safest from a repayment perspective of any debt in the world. So it's safer than you know, AA or AAA rated bonds. Um, it has a, upwards of a 98 to 99% repayment. Um, and so that for me, and then he wrote a book about kind of why businesses should be operating in that. And so that for me really was a huge catalyst. And so I, I wanted to figure out how I used finance, what I was good at and what I love, frankly, I love finance, to make the world a better place as opposed to a harmful one. And so it took some self-discovery, but I ended up in India working for a social investment bank, um, helping them get their equity division going, um, and then ended up in England, and then ended up in Ghana, and then ended up here, and now I'm kind of all over the world but with the base here, but very much still on that centered around how do we use finance, and now with the element of technology, to actually you know create the type of world we want to live in um, and make 
make the system work for everyone. It doesn't right now. No, not in the slightest. No. So fixing the system. And I think that's important. So understanding the rules of the game before you try and, you know, hack the game. Do you think we can fix the game or do you think we need a new game? (sighs) It's a very good question. Um, So, you know, my favorite quote about capitalism right is that it's it it the capitalism doesn't work um but um it works better than everything else <laughs> so and i butchered the quote but um yeah. so so i think that there's there's a movement around conscious capitalism and this idea of you know kind of but so i, I very much believe i do believe in markets uh, but i believe in market failures so i think that people that think that the market automatically provides uh, are just I mean, they're smoking something, to be honest. Um, but there are there are so many market failures, and so I do think we can use market principles. Um, but you know, we need to be focused on kind of, for lack of a better word, appropriateness. So, what is an appropriate you know return? What is an appropriate amount of capital? So, you know, does it make sense that the point one percent of the population you know now has more money than the isn't it the fifty fifty percentile? I get that little thing mixed up it's a world economic forum stat or sorry it's an oxfam stat um, that they always bring out around the um, time so so i don't think that makes sense and in the age of robots and artificial intelligence where suddenly we might have a few people owning all of the ip um and then you know masses not having jobs and not having access to that, um, I think the system needs to be prepared to adapt for that. It doesn't mean we have to throw away market principles. Um, it doesn't mean we have to throw away you know, meritocracy and things like that. But just, I think for a lot of people, the hardest part is accepting that the system doesn't work right now and then working to change it. Um, and I think that's, that's hard for a lot of people, particularly people that have benefited from the system, including myself. Well, that, that, that said, I think, I think the, the beneficiaries are... are and and that's what I alluded to when I spoke earlier about the the climate change stuff, and, and I'm completely complicit in it as well. To get uncomfortable yeah. is not an easy thing, and give up comfort, um, and and I think it's like against human nature, almost. It is. I mean, I have to say, I I have a really um, terrible carbon footprint because I fly so much. And so I've only recently really started to do things about it, like give up meat and, you know, try and be more conscious. I mean, I've, you know, I've always used public transportation and things like that. But I think what I find when, you know, when you have conversations with, you know, people of kind of the, you know, my generation, the kind of, you know, kind of border of kind of Gen X, Gen Y, um, is that there's a lot of people thinking about how do their daily decisions, you know, impact. And I think that's the start. And then we've got this, you know, these like kind of, millennial and then jet what is it gen z right yeah gen z that's the um that are way beyond where kind of the idea of you know cutting carbon um they are you know replacing carbon they are not just making a decision not to you know not to have meat they're making a decision about you know everything that they do as a a consumer in their entire lives and so i think the trends are going in the right way um it's just the question is is it fast enough and is it going to be, does the system start to then corrupt? So then when people come, people with these types of ide- ideas and, and these types of, you know, really wanting these types of passions, do they come into the system and then they find it so difficult? Or are they willing to change the system? And I think the thing is, is we can't wait for Gen Z to be in power. We can't wait 30 years for them to kind of be at the It'll help be of too late. It's too late. Yeah. And I think that's what's, 
you know, it is going to also be too late for potentially millions and millions of people that don't get the right jobs, don't get the right training, that don't have access to the right health care, that suddenly, you know, come of age as well. And so there's, there's a social net present value of dealing with problems now. So the net present value is what is the value kind of over time, and then you bring it back to today. And so there's a social net present value to dealing with things like conservation. If we kill off you know, specific uh, animal species, we don't get them back. If we overfish to the point where things are gone, we don't get that back. If we allow individuals to go their whole lives without having access to the right opportunities, you, you can't reverse that. And so there's a social net present value to dealing with things now um, and to making things more equitable now as opposed to in the future. And the longer we wait, the more expensive it gets That's down the line. exactly, yes. That yeah. is exactly how the math works. Yeah. But yet, most people just carry on. Yes and no. I mean, I think what I see, is, which is quite fun, is, you know, kind of having been kind of in this conversational space for about the past 10 years, um, in this impact space, is that um, I, it's very hard for me now to go into a room without having, without the room, no matter where the room is, it can be a bunch of hedge fund executives, without them having awareness of the issues and potentially awareness of the opportunity cost of, of not appreciating and then also potentially the opportunity for them to act. So I can say definitively five years ago that was not the case. You know, you had a lot of people kind of, oh, yeah, 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 even after the financial crisis, you know, that's, that's government's job, that's, you know, nonprofit's world. And so I think that we are getting to the point now where large companies are coming to the understanding and kind of the large corporates. And then also we're getting to a point where, you know, corporate greed is being exposed. So there's a case in the States now, the Sackler family, which was um, the um, family that basically pushed opioids into the American system. They, they have uncovered the fact that they personally oversaw this and, and, and knew what they were doing and still wanted to make money by making people sick. And so I think that, you know, the young people coming into workforces are sickened by that and don't want to be part of companies that do it. Um, and it's going to take, I'm afraid it's going to take too long to change, but I think it is, I mean, I think the conversation is starting to change. And I think corporate executives realize that they, if they don't make changes, legally they might be in trouble. Um, but more than that, they might have issues around capital uh, because more and more organizations um, are asking their financial advisors to use environmental and social governance screens. So about one in four dollars as measured um, in the States, but it's extrapolated globally, that's professionally managed, has some sort of SRI, um, so socially responsible investing screen or ESG screen. Um, and in South Africa, you'll find most um, fund managers have some sort of ESG screen. And so that means that, and depending on you know, how rigorous that is, some companies would pass it. So Andrew Cantor here, who runs Future Growth, you know, quite famously has put his hat around governance and has frankly done very well for his investors by, you know, not having exposure to Africa Bank, by not having exposure to Steinhoff, by not going into companies that he doesn't believe in their government governance. And so, you know, when investors start to see that there's a financial benefit to pairing up and looking at some of these externalities, then what you try and do is essentially try and create incentives for the market to behave in ways. And People respond to incentives. Mm. I mean, I don't have to tell anyone on Vitality that. <laughs> I think social media has played a huge role in mm -hmm. it as well. Like there was that uh, recent incident with Momentum and their, and their you know what I'm talking yeah. about, in, mm -hmm. in Durban. And social media basically forced them to change the way they operate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so it's, it's much harder to get away with things these days. 
It is. And I think when you when you know that you have a watchdog watching um, over you, and I think that, you know, we'd love for there just to be better moral people that acted out of their own best interests. But I tell my students and my clients, I, no one does anything out of the goodness of their hearts. Like, I'm sure there are people that do. But on a large scale, you can assume that people aren't. So what, you know, I, I teach and what I do is, is creating incentives for, again, for individuals and for companies to, you know, act in a way that makes sense for them. And so, you know, it's not necessarily bribing people. Hopefully it's not. Um, but it's setting up a system whereby you win by doing well. As opposed to a system where you win by cutting corners, by, you know, pushing everyone else aside. So, you know, it's our our current capitalist system is a winner takes all system. And so how do we make sure that that actually is a concept of shared value, where we actually are sharing value across not just shareholders? And I think that's one of the most dangerous ideas of the past 80 years, this idea that shareholders are king. Mm. Since a very small proportion of the globe actually owns shares. This means that we've set up a financial system by which only a few people will win. And so looking beyond shareholders to stakeholders for companies is, you know, very important. And having them realize that, you know, if they don't care about things like inequality and the climate, that doesn't mean that it's not going to massively affect their bottom line. So they need to figure out how their business actually works in that environment. From what from what you've been saying so far, I, I, my sense is that you're quite hopeful that that you, I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> okay, I I am too, but I have these moments of like oh, we're yeah. doomed, we're never going to make it. Yeah. Um, but I think you've got a you've got quite a unique and interesting perspective on it all. With you know, with looking at the finance side, looking at the technology now, and being involved in a global. Um, conversation do you feel realistically hopeful or is it that eternal optimist speaking i don't know so what i do feel so i was saying this recently i was up in the uk teaching last week and um the technology exposure has come as a double-edged sword um there are times that i want to retreat to the middle of the kruger and just live out the rest of my days there um because there is just so much overstimulation. Um, and I do really worry about what happens um, with the advent of kind of AI en masse, um, particularly around job disruption um, and around, you know, actually just asset accumulation. Again, a few people owning. Um, and I worry about the prevalence of, you know, governments with ill intent collecting, you know, so much data on their, um, on their um, constituents. So, I worry from a from an ethical perspective. I worry about the application of these technologies, um, and then on the other side, I worry about from a climate perspective actually having enough action soon enough to be able to do it. But I think what I'm fortunate in is that I see. So I see that from a macro perspective and I know that and like my head knows that. But then I see so many amazing examples of individuals creating positive social environmental change on a small scale that... What's your favorite one at the moment that comes to mind? That's a, that's, I mean, there's so many. I, I, love, I, I love getting to meet... Um, so I love meeting entrepreneurs. Um, so I wish I had more time just to spend with them. Um, I, I feel that's like picking a, a puppy. I don't want to. I don't want to like call <laughs> picking one a favorite out. child. Picking a favorite child. Um, an interesting one um, that's come across. Um, 
let's see, what's one that's come across my desk recently? I mean, I do have to say, as I said before, I really am interested in this idea of being able to do uh, allocating um, capital to um, to individuals to be able to, to create change. So that's Sella that I've already mentioned and Alice that are, um, are doing quite good work in EXO. Um, one that might not actually sound that impactful, but I really love the business model, um, is um, an organization here in Cape Town um, that's doing essentially um, kind of rideshare buses. Um, so in, it's, this is something that happens in, in the States a lot where you can take, you know, essentially a bus to work. It picks you up and then it has Wi-Fi and you can like work as you go. Um, and I love I love that they've built that model and they're, they're rolling it out here. I've seen it. What's, what's it Lula. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've, I've I saw it recently and they were looking for a crowdfunding. They're doing crowdfunding. Yes. Yeah, I invested in their crowdfunding. Okay. Yeah, so which is cool because you get the chance to, you know, be able to do that. Um, I think that um, there's there's some amazing um, initiatives around healthcare. So, for instance, we have, you know, essentially there's a vaccination now that um, a shot that actually cures hepatitis B. So being able to roll that out globally, um, I think, you know, again, there's a positive and negative, right? So vaccinations are, you know, at, were at a historic high last year. Um, and the, but now we're seeing flare ups of some of these, um, these things that we can fix. Um, so that's difficult. Um, I'm not coming up with very good good social organizations now. There's there's so many that have come into my inbox recently. And I deal with actually what I've seen really, actually the ones that I was um, I was reading some this morning, that were um, actually mostly funds that are being set up. Which so there's a a young woman um, here that um, I have worked with over the years. That's just amazing. She used to be the um, chief marketing officer of a startup called Zona um, here in Cape Town, and she's left, and now she's creating an early stage um, investment fund for female founders. Um, and so, and I love and I love that idea. And I actually just um, with um, a few friends have been part of the creation of an angel fund as well for female founders. We invest in female tech founders. It's called Dazzle. Um, Dazzle is a collection of um, zebra, and zebra is this new idea around um, the way in which organizations should grow. So instead of unicorns. Unicorns are mythical. Um, zebras are real, and then they have this blend. Um, their stripes are a blend of profit and purpose. Okay. So the if you want to read a great article, my friend Astrid wrote kind of on this movement globally. It's called um, "Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break," and so I think that kind of mentality. So since I focus so much on the financing side, that also mentality around the appropriateness is really interesting. And so I see. I think someone else, sorry, that I have been in, inspired by is the young woman um, from Sweden um, that protested outside of um, the... Greta. Yeah, yeah, Greta, yes, that is her name. Um, and so seeing, you know, 16-year-olds and all the walkouts that happened a few weeks ago, um, and then what the young people um, from Florida and the States have been doing around gun control, um, you know, I think it's easy to think that kind of evil will win when it is institutionalized, but I think there's... There's enough people that are kind of, you know, fighting back, um, mm. and I think that's I think that's important. I don't want to get into a political conversation because I'm I don't know enough. But my feeling is that in a way, that's what Trump's done for us is that <laughs> he's forced people to go. I'm going to do it myself because yeah. the government's not going to do it. And I think the sooner everybody wakes up to that, the better. Because a lot of governments are just not able to. They're just too clumsy and too slow to to react. 
Yeah, and I think a really good example is the Paris Agreement. So, you know, Trump essentially said that he was going to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. And in response, a bunch of states and a bunch of really large corporates said, well, we're going to adhere. And I think that's where, again, I was talking about earlier about this calculation that's being done, where people are saying, listen, the cost of not acting is actually really huge. And it's cheaper to start doing things now than it is necessarily to try and clean them up later. And so I think corporates are starting to you know, run models um, that show that, you know, if, you know, nothing is done, and of course, there's a tragedy of the commons where, you know, if no one does anything, then no one's going to get the benefit, but then also no one bears the cost. Mm. And so I think there is, a, you know, there's an element, and this is where, for me, innovative financing and the structuring piece comes in is creating instruments that people can be a part of that can work towards these larger goals, um, and where you can actually see the benefit then. Um, and I think that, you know, I think we need, and this is just my own belief, I think we need more female leaders. Um, I think, you know, the New Zealand Prime Minister has she's been... Amazing. She's amazing. She's incredible. She's incredible. Her response has just been mind-blowing. And and this is, there's a really good article that I was reading a couple of days ago in the New York Times about when women stop leading like men. Um, and it's just about this kind of, this need to be empathetic, to understand and to actually act out of compassion as opposed to out of strength. And, you know, for, for women leaders, I think for a long time, We've seen our kind of emotional side as the side that you need to repress to be able to play. And, I, and I'm totally, I mean, I don't really have an emotional side. I have to say that's something that I've struggled with forever. So I don't feel like I repress that. I just don't have it. But I think that Everybody's got it. I know. <laughs> My husband says that too. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, that's not seen as a strength. And so I think that, you know, we need to recalibrate just in general how we look at things. And having more females in power doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be, you know, I, there's plenty of women in the United States that I would never vote for because they would never serve my interests. Um, so it's females and males, but it's having empathy. And I think that it's realizing that the world is bigger than kind of where you are, that there's other people. In South Africa, we, you know, we see poverty on a daily basis. A lot of people don't. Mm. Um, and so, you know, Having people exposed to that and seeing that, you know, the world is is being affected by choices that you make every day, I think that requires people to do that. Um, I think where people struggle, and as you said, you know, if you had something you could do, people want action. They want to be able to do things. And so, you know, the behind-the-scenes piece of trying to create retail funds, of trying to, you know, build structures that do this, of trying to lobby around advocacy, the hard part is, is that's all systems work. And systems work is difficult and it takes a long time and you don't know something called attribution in impact measurement we don't know the work that i've done over the years in south africa i don't know how much of what's happened around um the pic you know putting you know one percent of its assets towards impact investing i don't know how much i had to do with that you know the you know things that are that happen within a system and so it's very difficult to figure out you know did your work create something and i think that my my concern with some of the younger generation is that they want the quick wins. They're used to kind of, you know, seeing things quick immediately, fixes, the yeah. quick fixes. Yeah. And, and there's some stuff that can be done just surely in mass, but then there's a whole set of work that needs to be done behind the scenes um, that involves bureaucracy, that involves a mm. lot of like very boring kind of stuff. So that is, that is a concern potentially for me on that. Well, m- my hope is that the, uh, because we're such a market driven, financially driven world that the consumers can drive the change. Hopefully, yes. Because if those trends continue, as you've highlighted, then hopefully the other side will go, will come to the party because they have to. They just 
Yeah, a good example actually is um, Patagonia I I saw yesterday. (laughs) This is quite a funny one. Again, a US-centric one. I apologize. I actually don't spend much time in the States and I haven't for 12 years, but obviously these ones get the the press. And so there's this um, vest that it's like essentially a puffy vest that everyone in kind of on Wall Street and kind of in Silicon Valley wears and Patagonia has stopped selling to um, anyone that that does coal, that is um, a um, financial, a Wall Street firm that doesn't have it's so basically like, and so they started sending it and so people are freaking out and so but they basically they're like we it's a it, they say we're not going to co-brand because these things have the patagonia brand and then they then they have the corporate brand and they said we don't want to co-brand with companies that don't fit our ethos and patagonia has always been for instance patagonia gave back the money that it got from the tax refund to actually help um to work on conservation now, I, I love patagonia have you have you read the i haven't actually people? read the book i haven't it's people so good i know it's my, so good. my former former boss always used to love that book i have not read it it's one of those that uh, there's a few of them but i think that you know consumers want to make decisions that are ethical uh, but i think you need to make it easy mm. again it's incentives so people you know if it's easy to buy a meatless burger and it, it costs something similar to buying you know a meat burger or cheaper then people will make that decision so i think insect protein is going to be very um, important so one of the um, impact investments um, that i've worked with here in south africa um, is um, run um, by a friend of mine and has built it's called agroprotein and has built an amazing um an amazing factory using um, black soldier flies to be able to essentially what they do is black soldier flies are the most efficient organism on the planet. So they can consume, I think it's between 10 to 20 times their um, body weight a day. Um, and so they they essentially can go into waste and they they eat it and then leave anything that's plastic that they can't eat aside. And so then they create this um, this really ro- nutrient rich um, kind of byproduct. And so you can put that into and create. And this is I mean, then that's one way. There's a lot of different ways you can use insect protein, and it's it's all super sustainable. Now the thing is, is the the issue is to create things that are appeasing and cheaper and like all of these different pieces so that people will buy them so people get into the store and they say or this or this and the impossible meats um is another one you know and there's been they've had there's been two ipos of meat substitute companies in the past year and you know there's a huge market for them and so then again we respond to market forces and so what you hope is that these you know companies that are doing things responsibly are actually responsible themselves. Um, And one of the things that I teach students a lot is to actually look at how inclusive is your company. So one of the papers I was grading this morning from my Oxford executive students is um, a young man that runs a very well-known organization that works on behalf of, you know, essentially the poor um, to work on the, the system. And his reflection was actually, as a company, we have our mission statement, but we don't reflect that. And so, you know, we're sitting in this, you know, Western city with this type of makeup of individuals. And even in our processes, we don't actually engage, you know, the end end user that we're working with. And so I think there's the sense of is it's not just doing the right thing, but actually understanding, you know, who it is you're affecting, engaging them in the process and actually being, you know, incredibly inclusive is actually how we're going to change things. Because it's easy to say, I'm doing this for that person down the road. But, you know, actually having them involved in the process and understanding, you know, what needs to be done and actually having power in the process is going to change how we do things, whether it's climate or inequality or education or healthcare, um, And that's a more difficult um, more difficult ask. It feels like more of like a global community type idea where we're all we're all together in this. 
And yeah, as long as we're not like holding hands singing "Kumbaya," that is, that's not that's not how I'm picturing it. So it's, it's understanding the you know again, it's understanding incentives. So you know, saying someone is trapped in a cycle of poverty, like what you know, what is their incentive to save when you know it's expensive for them to put money into a bank account? They have all these economic shocks. So like, what? So how do we design systems that actually work for individuals that have you know incentives for individuals to do things that are you know good for them on a long term basis and well as good for the planet? And so, you know, we can't look at people and say, no matter, you know, rich, poor, wherever part of the world and say, oh, they're doing that thing and it's bad. We should stop them from doing that. It's like, why are they incentivized to, you know, consume that much meat? Because, you know, historically they, they weren't, weren't able to afford meat. And so that's something that is, you know, is a, a status thing for them. Why does that person, you know, so it's, it's about, for me, it's about saying, it's about realizing that people are rational, even though. They're often irrational, but let's say people are rational. And so people are making choices, and they're making rational choices. And I think oftentimes we sit and we say, oh, those people are doing this, and they're, oh, they're not acting in their own best interest. And that's something that even on the liberal side we say quite often, right, about people that vote and things like that. And they're acting out of incentives. They are incentivized to do something. We might not think it's in you know, long-term best interest, but it might be in a short-term best interest. And for them, that's what they're acting out of. It's just people act rationally and they act for incentives. And so I think understanding what those are and working to address the core issues as opposed to you know, trying to get people to see the light um, is, is important. So people are going to make decisions based off of the information that they have um, and what they want in the short, medium, long term. And so, you know, if the system doesn't incentivize kind of the decision making that is best for the environment and best for, you know, kind of societies, then people aren't going to make those decisions. So the system, back to the new game or fix the game. (laughs) Yeah, the system needs the system needs to be changed. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think I don't necessarily I don't know if we need a new game, but the rules need to be changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it's just not, and I think the rules are going to be drastically changed with the advent of technology. So mm-hmm. where we have to think, and a good friend of mine, um, Joshin, um, it was it says very eloquently, we have to start preparing for a world beyond work. Because if we get to the point, which which people, it's interesting because you know at the beginning of the 19th century, people also thought we were going to get there soon. People are going to have all this free time because you know there's going to be all of these implements that can do this, and maybe we're going to look back in 100 years and be like that was an idiotic idea. But um, you know, if we're getting to a world beyond work, what does it look like to live in dignity, to be able to do? One of my you know it's interesting. Sorry, not to get into politics again, but there's a um, a young man running for president in the United States, and I was listening to another podcast. Um, one of my favorite podcast in America called Pod Save America and they did an interview with him and his name is impossible to pronounce it's it's Pete Bootgegeg or something like that Um, but he's a young guy about my age from Indiana uh, running for um, governor and what he said which really resonated with me um, the first time in a long time from a politician was that it's not necessarily about finding different ways in which people contribute, but it's actually valuing ways people already contribute and bringing those into formally into society. So people that, you know, care for children, that do childcare, people that care for the elderly, people that are, you know, doing positive work in, you know, societies. And so I think where we're going potentially is where your your economic activity is not limited to you leaving your house and going to work. And so it's what are you doing that is actually creating, you know, economic, social and environmental impact. And mm. so 
if we start to shift that, then, you know, there's going to be different payers. So there's going to be, you know, government, there's going to be private. And then finding ways to finance that and making sure that, you know, people can live dignified lives based off of a variety of contributions. Um, because if we do have, you know, where artificial intelligence is essentially doing a lot of the work, the work that we determine now of moving things around systems and doing the calculations and figuring out, you know, kind of logistics to how the system works, there's still going to be a lot of in-person work that needs to be done. Mm. And so how do we value that? And doesn't right now it potentially sits outside of our kind of our economic system um, and it's not paid for. Do you believe in universal basic income? You know, I do, but um, I, I believe in kind of a, a hybrid. So I think that, and I also believe in a transnational universal basic income. So, I mean, people say universal basic income, and sometimes they just meet from within countries. So, you know, Sweden paying its individuals. and I think Sweden what, can afford it, South Africa can't. Right, but also the thing to remember is that the, the, the makings of the world economy come from different parts of the economy. So Sweden doesn't, you know, produce and you know, it's it's not a you know economy within itself it imports and it exports and there's you know take something like coffee so 90 percent of coffee is produced in the global south and 95 percent of the profits are made in the global north so wow. the farmers are not making the money from from coffee it is the the middlemen it is the people that are actually selling the coffee the people that are packaging it the people that are doing all the pieces for it and so our economic system is not set up to necessarily reward the inputs it's, it's set up to reward the value added and so when we're talking about a universal basic income, if the parts of the robot and the data that's training the robot is coming from other parts of the world, it doesn't just mean that who owns the robots is the one that gets that should reap all of the value of those, of selling that service. And so there's going to need to be... It, a redirection of you know essentially a global vat and and blockchain is potentially going to be very useful for this if we create blockchain enabled supply chains that allow us to redistribute capital along those supply chains like a global vat um, and then we start to have something where you could potentially think about you know a proper like transnational universal basic income and then you know i think you have a, a system whereby Again, and this is where I don't think. That's why I kind of I think there's a hybrid, and I and I haven't you know I haven't written on this, and I haven't gotten a, you know kind of really verbalized other than kind of you know informally. But you know, again, paying people for work that they're doing for communities and for the environment. So finding ways to you know incentivize and remunerate people for things that we wouldn't currently do now. Mm. So Va not just, valuing those other things, right? So not just everyone gets you know a hundred thousand rand. And then, you know, can do, but, you know, there's, there's, you know, by providing, you know, childcare, there's this, by doing, you know, you are working on, you know, building parks and like maintaining, you know, so figuring out, you know, and I don't, and this is, you know, it's a big ask. I think there is going to be potentially an element of redistribution, though, that needs to happen. Um, and so, you know, having individuals have an amount of, you know, cash that they can, they can spend to be able to hopefully invest in assets and be able to increase that. Um, but where we have we have completely i think what we're trying to do um, by 2030 with the global development or the sustainable development goals is to eradicate extreme poverty um and that'll go hopefully a ways towards this and so um so yeah i i, I do think that there's going to be a need to do redistribution um particularly around and government's going to need to be involved and then you know coalitions of government globally around not just where the robot sits 
Mm. So, you know, the actual supply chain of what and the data and compensating people for data. Another thing I think is quite interesting, similar to what I said before, is data labor. So thinking about small payments, micropayments, individuals that are actually training AI. Right now, a lot of what we do is we train artificially intelligent algorithms by just giving information, walking around with Google Maps on our phone, you know, doing things where we get value, but the calculation of that isn't necessarily right. So the amount of the value we're giving up of the data is not necessarily what we're getting back. Mm. And so starting to think about redoing that and so actually paying individuals as a bit of an on-ramp to if your your job's going mm. to be partially replaced, you know, you're getting compensated mm. for that. I think that makes sense also because you know, if you look at what's happened like in, with Facebook mm-hmm. and and social media particularly, even even YouTube and Google the way that the data is managed is not in in our best interest and we have no control of it but if i bought in and i'm actually paid to give you my information it's a completely different ecosystem well and where it gets completely different are things called self-sovereign identities so this idea where we would actually in our, our phone or kind of in our computer or some way hold a key to our own identity and so how a self-sovereign identity works is um it's blockchain enabled um which means that there's a decentralized system that holds all these different pieces so your um identity Identity number as verified by, you know, essentially think of the box you've got at home that has all of your important documents in it, that electronically all verified. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll hold these self-sovereign identities. And when you go to apply for a mortgage at a bank, the bank will say you need to make over X amount, you need to be employed, and you need to have a home address. And then you will say, you'll give them essentially permission to to ping into your self-sovereign identity, but they won't take information out. This is where it gets interesting. They'll essentially ask a series of yes or no questions. Do you make more than this? And then your your income will be verified by SARS, but you they will get a yes, no. Like, are you employed? So they'll essentially keep no data on their systems, which means that, you know, eventually, hopefully, and this is the kind of the ethos of the blockchain movement, is that the user will own all of that data. And so you'll be, and this is where it gets very interesting with being able to pay people. So for instance, if you're doing a longitudinal study, then you know you will have individual self-sovereign identities that are tracked within that. And then each time you want to update your information, it'll still sit there and you'll have to be able to um, pull pieces of it out, but you'll have to pay the individual potentially. Mm. So yes, I'll give you access to this, but you know you need to be able to pay me. And so there's still it's still being ironed out, but there's the... Sovereign Network, which is the a nonprofit created to essentially manage this global global system, um, has multiple um, hundreds of founding members. And ABSA is the first um, African bank that's one of the founding members. So these members then will be able to verify data and will be able to hold it. And instead of it being sitting on servers everywhere, and we're just going to have to get better at realizing that you know the organizations we trust with data potentially will be no one. It'll actually be us. I mean, Facebook, I think, is... There's another, um, I mean, they're just, they're going to find out the way they ran that company for years was there was absolutely no consideration of end users and the data. And there's mm-hmm. going to be, I think the, the public trust in Facebook is, is, is pretty low and I, I don't think we'll get higher. Mm. Yeah, I, I've kind of largely checked out from Facebook yeah. for a long time and I, a lot of, more and more people are. Yeah, I think so. And, and the youth actually aren't interested no, in No, they platform. don't care about Facebook at all. Their yeah. grandparents are on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they use YouTube and Snapchats and yeah. other ones that I probably don't even know the name of. So, so we can, uh, there's a lot of technology stuff we can talk about but one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you is, and it feels like it's a passion point for you is being a, a, a woman in the world yeah. and um, just to talk about your experience around that, and have you felt gender inequality through through your 
I was listening to, to the example to illustrate what I'm looking for. Mm. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently and the, it was a black man talking and he was saying that, he, so he's got a PhD at one of the top universities in the world and he still feels like there's racial prejudice towards him within the, the university. Mm. Um, was that the MIT professor that, was, that wrote the, yeah, that was a beautiful article that he wrote, um, haunting. So, is is there any element of that that you've experienced over your um, career? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I've experienced um, sexual harassment, intimidation, and um, I mean, obviously, you can't see me, but I'm a young-looking blonde girl, and frankly, I've been doing kind of stuff um, that's been at a more senior level than I look for about ten years, um, and so I think you know, just being underestimated is the, the easiest piece of that. But obviously on the, and I don't really want to talk about the other stuff, but like, I think that, I think that I, the experiences that I've had, some of them have been really, um, some of them have been quite damaging, but um, I think that I've tried to take them and, you know, channel them into positive energy. I think that I overall, if I look at my career, I have very rarely allowed kind of my gender to get in the way um, of what I've what I've done. And I think that that's part of just my personality. But I certainly have seen instances um, that I have been involved in and that others have been involved in, you know, where there it could have gotten in the way or maybe it didn't. I didn't even know. Um, and I think one of the things for me that's been the most difficult um, is because I do so much kind of work globally on my own, particularly before I was married, um, things that always was really tough was when I wanted to have a meeting and someone would, you know, it was like an evening meeting and someone would suggest, you know, doing it, you know, at a bar or in, when I was in the UK, you know, everywhere serves um, alcohol. And so then all of a sudden I'd realized that what I thought was a very professional meeting was suddenly turning into kind of almost a date. And it was so demeaning for me. Um, and I've had within the academic world, um, I've had bosses ask me out, um, you know, totally inappropriately. Um, and kind of, you know, assume that, um, you know, as a as a young female academic that I just don't have the right qualifications to be able to doing things. And I'm not really an academic, so I kind of get that. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think I see I think I'm aware of I think my experiences are very, very mild compared to, you know, a lot of women. But I think that because I have that ability to be empathetic, that I see that and I um one of the characteristics of my personality from the, my Enneagram is that I I strongly I have a strong emotional um, kind of uh, response to injustice, and so when I see whether it's race or sex or socioeconomic, like when I see that affecting people's ability to achieve, um, it makes me angry. And I think what's been interesting is watching the Me Too movement is seeing all of these women that I feel like for me and for my kind of generation being able to verbalize and vocalize that is something new but something we can do and then you know really feeling for a lot of women that have had a lot of years where they haven't been able to do that and I think that um, part of for me one of the things that I'm super passionate about because it sits in my area is women founders getting funding so one percent of um of global VC, and I think actually that number changed last year up to two or three percent, but went to female founders. That's crazy. And there's two things about that. One is that it's ridiculous, and then two is that it's it means that there's alpha to be had. There, there's money to be made because that is not an accurate representation of talent. 
So it is, there's no way that those there's a whole portion of those 97% of male founders that are not not as well prepared or not as um, as going to be as successful as a whole set of female entrepreneurs that didn't get funded. And so just from a from a pure financial perspective, you're like, well, there's a whole set of women out there that you know need to be funded. And then the other piece of that is then when you start to go to race, and so it becomes even smaller and smaller when you start to look at um, the number of women of color that mm-hmm. get access. And so you know then again, because I look at this from an economic perspective, it means that there's products out there that haven't been brought to the market that actually meet a huge swath of the market's needs. Women have 70% of the consuming power um, in the world. So, you know, there's a whole set of stuff that hasn't been brought out. And I think that's where, you know, again, these are market failures. And so how do we encourage young girls to get into coding? Because, mm. you know, it's a, and, oh, there's actually a great, I love the New York Times. I read it a lot. There's a massive article, it was either the New York Times or the New Yorker, that looked at how coding was not always a male dominated industry. Actually, post World War II, when it started, actually females were, because it was considered a secretarial job. Hmm. actually doing and so a lot of the stuff that was put into place particularly up into the 50s 60s and 70s was actually by women and a lot of the the computer science departments were split 50 50 between women and men and then it became a cultural thing of this kind of you know tech bro and so i think figuring out how to allow anyone that feels like their voice is repressed is part of that market failure and so or sorry part of fixing that market failure and so for me, I can take, you know, my experience as, you know, a very privileged white woman of even, you know, the harassment and the intimidation that I've, you know, kind of seen and very much kind of fought against and be able to use that empathy for, you know, others. And it and it colors what I do and how I do it. It doesn't mean that I understand what people go through. And it doesn't mean that I don't need to confront my own biases and prejudices and, you know, my own privilege. But um, I think... It does help me to see, and I think that um, I think anyone of any color, you know, white males with all the privilege in the world, can be part of fixing it. So I don't think that you know your experience, you know, pushes you out of that realm. Um, but just as we were talking about before, with the system needing people needing to realize the system doesn't work before you can start fixing it you know we need to realize that our own experiences color how we see the world, and so we need to be empathetic to others. And I think that's where, you know. Finance seems like it's objective, and it's not. So finance has lots of subjectivity too, and lots of ways in which you know the world is colored based off experiences. And so people often say, "Oh, well, you can't measure that. You know, we can't have a system. You know, there's there's so much we can do. We so much we do already in finance. It's subjective, and you know, making impact more objective is part of it. But also realizing that you know how we allocate capital also is subjective." You alluded to it a few moments ago, like back to that, the, the the system needs to be fixed. And I think a big part of that is the white male privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, 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 is the, it is the dominant controlling force on the planet and it is largely selfish and destructive. Um, but it is, it is shifting, I think. Um, it's another place, I think, of... Of increased awareness, and it's interesting as a man in yeah. in the world. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. one of my feelings is that um, I, I consider myself as a relatively um, aware, compassionate man, and I, I, I'm married and I've got two daughters, and so it, it's 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 definitely something I think about. Um, but there's a there's a part of me as a man that almost doesn't know how to be in the world anymore because mm. because the old way is clearly not 
working yeah. and and so us as men need to find a new way of being um that speaks to all of what you've spoken about the yeah. inclusivity and the compassion and um it doesn't come naturally to us uh it doesn't yeah. come naturally to any of us though i think that's where it's and i think it's difficult because there's i think what i see and what i hear is that you know there are others that are, whether from a racial or a gender perspective or socioeconomic perspective, that feel like they've been saying enough for long enough that they don't want to continue to repeat themselves. And I understand that. Um, and I think there's um, there's been some interesting writing about not making it about about you. So how do you how do you have these conversations without kind of ingesting it? And there was um, an article um, that I was reading about a. A, a black woman that's a trainer around she does equity training for companies and she she sees it in that the you know, the people of color in the room aren't willing to share their stories but within the trainings and things like that and aren't vocal but you know the people the white people in the room are very vocal about how it affects them and so i think that there's has to be a global discussion and there has to be sympathy and empathy on both sides um and i think i don't know what the rules are going to be um but i think that Again, acknowledging that you know that we that the rules are changing for the better. Um, one of the things for me, I think, one of the the quotes that for me is the most kind of apropos of what we're doing now is, let's see if I can get it right. I'm terrible at getting quotes right. When you're used to superiority, equality feels like repression. Mm. And so there's this sense of you know. There's a lot of people in the world that have had a lot of privilege that suddenly, you know, see some of that privilege being taken away. And because they don't have that anymore, or they have only a piece of it, they suddenly feel like they're being repressed. And when in actuality, it is potentially equality. And, you know, so I think there's there's going to be a coming to terms and, you know, not screaming about a net loss in privilege, but actually looking around and, and figuring out, you know, that you're potentially sitting off still better than where you were, um, but you know, potentially, you know, realizing what it's like to, you know, have some sort of prejudices. Um, this is one of the things I have to say that I, I'm actually kind of pretty optimistic about. I think the coming generations um, have a very different kind of version. I think where I get concerned in South Africa is a great example of where there are being promises made to a younger generation that are not being fulfilled. Um, and I worry about that across Africa and in the Middle East and where you have particularly young men that now feel as if they've been marginalized. So I do worry about that. But I would say in general, the generation that's coming up, Generation Z, is very aware of the world. They're aware of people, where people sit in it. They don't hold the prejudices of, you know, kind of some of the older generations just inherently, and they don't understand those prejudices. Um, and there's going to be small pockets, obviously. There are Trump supporters across the United States that are five years old that, you know, yell, build a wall at um, young Hispanic children in their kindergartens. But in general, I think that the, those, the type of prejudice and the way in which it works is going to become very archaic. And I think it's going to be difficult for the generations that are still around for quite a long time to, to, to figure out the new rules of the game. Um, but, um, you know, there's a place for everyone in, in this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And so I think we just have to get used to being uncomfortable. I think that's exactly it. It's, it's about 
discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I, I, I read this, I, I saw this little uh, clip recently and it, it, it uses uh, lobsters as an analogy. So when a lobster grows, it grows into its shell and it then becomes so uncomfortable it has to crawl under a rock shed its shell and grow a new one and then it grows it grows until it becomes so uncomfortable that it has to do it again so that discomfort represents growth okay um i didn't know that i didn't yeah it's just a fascinating uh thing i I, I really feel like discomfort is a place that we need to as you said um almost look seek out because it means we're growing we're moving yeah um and it's it's almost counterintuitive to we're all programmed to seek happiness and that success image looks like yeah happy image and that might represent what five five percent of your experience yeah um the rest of the time is going to probably be uncomfortable and to to find a way to be at peace and be okay with that yeah and i think also it's about you know being seeing how much is enough Mm. so you know as opposed to you know we have this complex that it you know, everything must be more. Um, and, you know, yeah. in psychology, obviously, it's very well documented that, you know, they do the, they've done the one with the marshmallows where they give people marshmallows and they um, actually take more than they can eat, even though they know they can't eat all of them. It's just about accumulation and about, you know, with games and with everything. And, and we, we adjust our standards. And so I think, you know, whether it's consumerism, which is where we're starting, you know, how much is enough? What do you actually need to own? You know, and what can you rent and what can you, you know, share mm. and what can you, you know, like, and I think that that's one piece that we're looking at it. Um, and then another is for, for income. So, you know, making conscious decisions to say, this is, you know, this is how much I, I, I need. And then I'm going to spend, you know, my time doing potentially other things. And I think that's where... Or give the rest away. You can give extra money away or scale back, right? So you don't mm. need to work as you you know as much as potentially you think you need to work to accumulate all of yeah. this all of this you know kind of wealth you know there's other ways to spend your time and i think that's where you know the system the reason it doesn't work is there's a few privileged people that are in the position to you know capture essentially that wealth and everyone else is looking up and trying to get there um but you know if instead we have you know people that are looking at you know what is actually appropriate what is enough um, and you know how much how much do you need to survive um, and then you know to thrive and then beyond that you know how do you productively use what you have um, so I think that'll mean that we consume less um, it means that hopefully we share more mm. um, it means that we're more aware of those that don't have and we try and figure out how to systemically do that as opposed to you know historically from a philanthropic from a government perspective it was how do you do just enough to make, you know, you, you make your money and then you turn in and you give a little bit of away. And then, you know, the impact investing world that I'm working in is saying that's not enough. You can't be out, you know, the, the Purdue family is a, a good example or the Sackler family. Uh, Purdue is a good example. You can't be out there creating an opioid crisis. And then they they were philanthropists. They gave money to museums. And, you know, and so they had all of this, you know, and, and Rockefeller is actually a great example. The Rockefeller Foundation is one of the foundations that I work closely with. You know, his legacy is, you know, maybe years on is, is better. But at the, at the beginning, he was a robber baron. And so I think this idea that you can 
turn and do with most of your life and pursue at the expense of all others, of the environment, of you know your community, and then you can do a small amount and give back is just not appropriate. And so then the question starts to become is what does that balance look like? Maybe that balance looks like you know you you work for a certain amount of hours and then you volunteer for a certain amount of hours, or you take care of you know your kids for a certain amount of hours, or you do or you know I mean I think it's I think it's completely realigning that or you work for a couple of years and then you actually you know don't work for a year or two and I think that's where you know newer generations including you know my own kind of I sit at that in between the millennial and gen x so it's always hard to like do I identify with millennials do I identify with gen x um but you know the new generations are saying like we don't want to get into a job you know pay for you know all these things that we're told that we need you know, should aspire to and have and then be trapped by that. Mm. And so I think it is that's completely rewriting the rules of the game. So you don't get, you know, and so I think that's, you know, I think that's not a universal choice. Not everyone's going to make that. Not everyone has the, the ability or the privilege to make all mm. those choices. But if the system is set up to say, right, you know, you want to be a mom. And so we're actually going to make it viable for you to have a kid to stay home with that child, to take care of that child. Or, you know, you want to work with, you know, you want to work in conservation. Like we're going to make it possible for you to go out and to do that and to make a good life for your family and to be able to do that. And so rewarding people when they want to do positive things for the you know, environment and society and not a lesser rate. Hmm. So social workers and teachers. Or teachers. And, yeah, exactly. yeah, in South Africa, it's a big... It's a big yeah, issue. I mean, but there also has to be, you know, incentive too. Our teachers are actually, you know, paid well by African standards, but our educational outcomes are abysmally poor. And so, you know, it's not always about money. Hmm. So, you know, you can... It's, it's about also, you know, setting up the system so it works for the end users. In that case, the students, as opposed to the system's not necessarily... The education system is not necessarily set up just to work for the teachers. Teachers are a piece of it, but the education mm. system is set up to educate children. Well, that's a whole other system no, which I think is yeah, completely <laughs> broken and needs to be completely revised from yeah. the ground up. <laughs> um, and technology in that case is a very interesting thing mm. to look at. So technology screens, being able to be removed from screens now becoming a privilege of the rich. So technology is a great example of where in education, where you know it was brought in to essentially fix education and now what's happening is in poor households and in poor countries screens are being used to replace teachers sometimes for better and sometimes not necessarily for better so there's you know there's a larger i think i work with a lot of amazing ed tech companies um, that are doing really great work that i'm absolutely and i think technology has a place in the classroom but so do teachers and so Mm. do Uh, again it's a hybrid i think totally yeah Yeah. um khan academy you know khan yeah yeah, of course i think i think he's I watched a TED talk, it was quite a while ago now, where he was doing the in-class, the, the concept learning was on on the screen, and then in-class was more about collaboration yes. and yeah. teamwork and and things like that, which, because the social, the social aspect is what we need, yeah. particularly with AI and yep. robots, and that's what differentiates us, mm-hmm. is, is that social ability and our emotional intelligence and... Yep. Um, our ability to work together. Yeah, that's how I try and teach creativity, my Creativity, yeah. It's using, yeah. I have videos, online videos that people watch and then they come into class and actually try and do the work for as much as I can. Um, but yeah, no, completely. And so, you know, how do we do that effectively is the question. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about screens. It's about how do we do it effectively? And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about a child sitting, you know, in a rural area of South Africa, being able to access videos from all over the world. Um, but there's also a sense of, you know, that 
making sure that, you know, we don't just fix that problem by, you know, putting screens out there and not actually worry about, you know, what are the things around emotional intelligence and cooperation and mm. all of those different pieces that you need to be, as you said, successful mm. in this environment. Well, I, th- I think the the teachers can also get additional training via the screens, which uh, they can a, then take into That is the, a really, really interesting part of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Doing more training of trainers, mm. 100%. Mm. Um. We can keep going for a long time. It's it's already been like an hour and a half. Is or, it really? Yeah. Okay. We probably should time, wrap time up. Goes I've, got, I've got a few things to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, uh, there, there are a whole bunch of things that we could have carried on talking about. I got a lot of value out of this. Good. Thank you so much. Um, no problem. We'll talk again another time. Sounds good. Cool. Oh, one last thing. <laughs> If someone wants to reach out to you and get in touch to, well, for whatever reason, how do they do that? Um, you can actually just Google me, Ani Patton Power. I come up. Uh, my website has contact details. Um, it's Intelligent Impact is the name of my company. So, And you can find me on LinkedIn and everything else. So my name is very Googleable. <laughs> awesome. Thanks.